like to welcome everyone here tonight. It's happy to have you with us. If you are visiting, we're really, really happy. Uh, we're very happy, actually. And so, hey, we got a thin crowd tonight. Huh. We have to keep you all late and make up for it. Got so many minutes per person. And so we're going to have to get my allotment here. Um, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. We are in a series called Revelation chapter, no, not Revelation chapter 10, Revelation Light. We're studying the book of Revelation, and we're doing it light. And when I say light, what we're not going to do is get really, really wrapped up around certain details. And it's not because we don't find them important or anything like that. It's not because it, you know, it, it isn't interesting to sort of map to some of the events at the time and kind of really kind of go through that and, and understand things and really kind of point to events and this or that as much as it is to really understand the story that God's telling here and uh, the broad themes that are put on display. Uh, because sometimes it's possible to get so narrowly focused on things that you kind of lose sight of the story. And so we're gonna, we said we're going to keep it kind of light, and that also allows us to end on time, I guess, and not, maybe not tonight, but generally speaking, you know, keep this to one, one and a half quarters, and, and as opposed to, you know, a multi-year study, because you could spend a lot of time in the book of Revelation and never get bored. And unfortunately, whenever we talked, it's one of those books that if you, you know, most of the time, we get really kind of weird. We get goofy when we open it up. In the sense that, you know, we get so hung up on this and the numbers and, and everything. Like, and we just get, in, and, you know, and so you, there's that whole body of people out there that somehow want to be able to, you know, look at CNN and watch CNN and, and go to the book of Revelation and, and, and track everything like that and, and try to create some countdown to the rapture. Remember, you know, if you are buddies over at raptureready.com, you know, they continue to track and they continue to tell us that we are in the woo lookout. Uh, phase. And so uh, it could happen any time, they said, and, you know, the, the return of Jesus. Of course, you know, like I said, they've been saying that for the better part of, I think, nine years or whenever the website went into existence. And I don't say that to make fun of them. I kind of do. Um, and, but as much as it is that it's so indicative of, you know, being so consumed by that, and worrying about every episode of CNN and who's fighting who over in the Middle East and, and who's, you know, uh, who's the superpowers and is it a G8 or is it a G12 summit and what's Russia doing and what about the tanks? It's so easy to get so bogged down in that that you miss the beautiful message that God is presenting. I can finally start because I promised a sweet woman that I would not start until she got in here. Thumbs up. Okay, here we go. Buckle up. So this week, this is week seven, and week seven, and this kind of gets us through the end of chapter 11. And really, if you kind of look at what we're going to talk about tonight, it really all kind of boils down to the sanctity of God's word and the trials and deliverances of those that witness for him. But it's all really balled up into the sanctity of God's word, of God's message, and the idea that no matter how bad things get, our charge is still to take the Word of God, to live it, to talk about it, to expose others to it. And whatever happens here on earth, God's got it under control. And it might not always be fun, and it might not always be enjoyable. It might be painful, it might be difficult, but our charge is to do that. And again, you know, so let's kind of do a quick little 
review and a preview. Remember, you know, kind of the setting in the first century back then was things aren't good for Christians. It's not a happy time for Christians. I'm not saying it's a happy time today, but things were really pretty antagonistic back then. You had persecution, you had trials, you had oppression, and you know that might be political oppression, it might be financial. Uh, you had you know death. Christians were killed back then. It was fun for sport to kind of keep them thinned out. You had sort of this what you know, a deified reign of the emperor. And what that means is the, the role of the emperor and the arrogance of the emperors. It wasn't just, I'm in charge, and I'm going to boss you around, and, and that kind of means spirited. But they'd almost elevated themselves up to be deities. Emperors were worshipped as if they were gods. And that was, not a, that was not a happy thing to have. And you had still, and if that wasn't bad enough, you had the continued ongoing immorality and idol worship. The chief idol really being the Roman government. And the emperor. Okay. And so then what happened then is persecution during this time really emanated from Rome. And if you can kind of sort of imagine, you know, so Rome is, is, is sort of, that is the, the epicenter of all of this. And it's really, really bad in, in right there. And as you sort of fan out, it's still bad. And it kind of tapers off a little bit just because of proximity. But out of Rome came persecution to all of the various provinces and everything like that. And keep in mind, during this time, you know, they didn't really respect the boundaries that we see in Rand McNally when they make an atlas. Okay, back then, it was, if you're big enough to take the city, if you're big enough to take the country, if you're big enough to take, you know, that fortress or whatever, it's yours. And so that's how you had a strong empire. And so that kind of worked their way out. And so God had a message for the seven churches in Asia. That's what this book's about. And in this message, it talks about the reality of the situation. You know, just, you know, there's trials, there's tribulations, there's death, there's persecution, there's hardships. And then the Bible has never, you know, sort of minced words about that. God's prophets have never, at any point in time from the very beginning to the very, very end, at no point in time has God or Jesus or any of their ordained messengers ever soft-pedaled the message of what life is really like. And if there's going to be hardships, that's how they called it. They didn't come up with some cute little euphemism for it's really not that bad or anything like that. If there's going to be a famine, if there's going to be a drought, if people are going to die, if bad things are going to happen, that's exactly how they called it. And so this book, you know, know, talks about the reality of the situation. It is intended to bring sort of a confidence of God's deliverance and a certainty of destruction to those that would oppress. That's the message here. That's kind of everything kind of getting bound up in here. Now, to do that... And that's what makes this book unique, is when we get to that last point. Because everything above that, that isn't a new message. You know, they, you know, there's 65 books of the Bible. Many times throughout that, that same exact message has been carried to God's people by a prophet of some sort. You know, you can go back to the Old Testament, you can even go to the New Testament. You know, Peter talked about trials and tribulation. Those trials and tribulation, this is not some new message. What makes Revelation unique is when we get to that very last point. Because God had numerous ways that he could do this. Numerous ways that he could, you know, many options to convey that message. He could have had just grabbed John and John could have gone out and talked to people. And just give them this word. And he could have had John pen a, I'll say, a typical epistle. You know, I, John, an apostle, and, to do, and you, know, you know, to the saints at 
Pergamon, Philadelphia, Odyssea. He could have done it that way. Instead, he chose this idea of revelation. This idea that instead that he would reveal Jesus. And in the revelation of Jesus, and the revealing of the Lamb, the Lion, the very Son of God, in revealing that, he is able to convey confidence. He's able to convey conviction. He's able to convey deliverance. Not by saying this or this or this or this or this, not providing details and, and everything like that, by simply showing John a greater revelation of Christ. And how cool that must have been for John. Because keep in mind, John was privileged to be around Jesus as he walked the face of the earth. In that realm, you know, he got to see Jesus very, very different than most people would. He certainly got to see Jesus different than we do today. We read about him. He's revealed to us through God's word. None of us were there. But he got to see it. In fact, that's how he opened up, you know, the, the gospel of John. You know, having seen it, having touched it, having been around it. But even in that capacity, you know, John only got about this much revelation. He got to see kind of the physical, earthly stuff. Oh, he got to see some miracles, don't get me wrong. And he got to see some aura-type issues. And certainly, you know, anytime someone rises from the grave, that's pretty impressive. But that's still... His revelation was sort of in an earthly context to John at that time. Now, John, in the book of Revelation, gets Christ revealed to him on a completely different plane. And so he goes from this to this. Because now he really gets to see some things that go on behind the scenes. And so that's what's going on. And so John's allowed to see some things. John gets scenes. Okay, now again, keep in mind, you can't look at this as these events that happen end to end to end. These are scenes. And so many times in the book, John transitions from, and then I saw, and then was shown to me. And so he's got these scenes, but these scenes are an underlying story about the deliverance of God. That things that are about to happen, you know, and so, you know, that would soon take place, the Bible tells us. And so far, up to now, we've seen the... You know, the, the presence of the Lamb, the throne, the seals of revelation, the trumpets are warning, the interlude, the sealing of the saints. And so that's where we have, that's where we are today. So here we go. Oh, let's go. Always gotta... Turn to your Bible to Revelation chapter 10. In chapter 10, we really spend a lot of time, you know, again, it's all about, it's, if you take a step back, it's about God's word. Now, the images that we get are pretty impressive, but it's really the sanctity of God's word. In chapter 10, starting in verse 1, he says, And then I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow is upon his head. I see a strong angel, John says. And again, you know, this is, this is, these, are, these are scenes. Here's this scene of this strong angel. And the Bible says, and it's very angelic. The rainbow on the head, his face was like a sun. And again, remember we talked, you know, about, you know, so many times our images of angels are, are too much grounded or too often grounded in little Angetis type of little things. Okay? It, it really, and those are cute little, you want to grab their little cheeks and, and kind of grab them in the little booty and they kind of, you know, those little cute little angels. Those aren't the angels that the Bible talks about. 
You know, at no point in time does, you know, are, are angels depicted as kind of these cute little, little things. He, John says, I saw a strong angel. And that strong angel shone like the sun. And that strong angel stood and was able to stand with one foot on the sea and one foot on land. It was a big angel, folks. And, and, and that's a pose almost of dominion over, you know, over the, the entire earth. Standing. He's got ground. He's got the sea. What else is there? Nothing. And so this angel is standing there. Now, this angel has an open book, the Bible says. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. There's three times in this passage in in chapter 10 where he talks about, you know, he's got a foot on the sea and a foot on the land. He cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now, here's what's kind of neat. John doesn't tell us what he cried out. I mean, every time I see that in the Bible, I always just wonder, what do they cry out? You know, I, I, I don't know. You know, just what, you know, is it, do they make a, just kind of a noise, an incoherent noise? Do they actually say something? I don't know. You know, if you think about, you know, movies that have these great sort of battle cries, you know, Braveheart, you know, as they yell for freedom. You know, I wonder what he yelled. I wonder what the thunder uttered in their voice. I don't know. Maybe it was nothing. Maybe it was no you know, coherent words. And he says, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. I heard a voice saying, seal this up. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. And so he's got this book. And now he's, he's going to swear by the very lamb himself. And he says, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. Who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, there'll be a delay no longer. It goes on to say, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angels, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants the prophets. So the angel is just is thundering. When God is ready, it's time. And we're going to take care of business. I can remember, and you guys probably went through the exact same thing, either as a kid or as a, as a parent. And more often than not, we remember the vivid ones as a kid. You know, when we kind of pushed the limits of Dad's patience. Remember those days? And you just kind of, you kind of messed around, you kind of messed around, you kind of, you know, you, you know, did something at the dinner table you shouldn't, and you just kind of, and it just kind of got going. And all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, Dad had had enough. And the peals of thunder, <laughs> you know, were, that, that's kind of what's going on here. And But what the Bible wants us to understand is, at the right time, God does this. And he swears by the very name of Christ that there shall delay, there will be no delay no longer. They shall be delayed no longer. Whew, that was a tough one there. Now in verse 8... So now we're going to talk about adherence to God. So that's, that's sort of the sanctity of this word. Now let's move on to adherence to the word. But before we do that, 
And before we kind of read these passages that we people get all worked up over, we got to get back to the Old Testament just a little bit. And let's go back to Jeremiah first. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, Jeremiah talks about the words of the Lord. He says, the words, your words were found. I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah said, I ate those words. You ever been around somebody and then you just watch them grab a novel? What's one of those verbs that we use? Oh, they just devoured it. They just chewed that novel up. They just got all over that book. You understand? When we talk about that, okay, it, it's important. Because people understand that. And then they get to the book of Revelation. And they assume that John got up there and put on the best china, this little book, and he started to eat it. Okay? Again, that, they decouple common sense. Not, not just common sense, but remember we talked about how the book of Revelation, even though it does not quote verbatim, passages out of the Old Testament, the same way that other books in the New Testament might. You know, you, especially you go to the book of like Hebrews, for instance. The book of Hebrews, time and time again, it is word for word quote out of the Old Testament. You know, from the prophets or from Moses or whomever, you know, you see that it's a word for word quote. In fact, in your Bible, it's typically the font's a little bit different so that you know it is a word for word quotation out of the Old Testament. Well, in the book of Revelation, we don't have those word for word quotes as much as we have these principles, these images that those at the time would be able to draw on from their legacy. And so, you know, so we don't see in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah ate the words. Go over to Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel was given a tough message to take to the people. And he said, he said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll, which I am giving you. I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Now, if you remember, the message that Ezekiel had to give to his audience wasn't overly pleasant all the time. There was a lot of tough love there. And so later on, Ezekiel uses the term embittered. So the spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Ezekiel understood you know what we're about to read about in the book of Revelation. The word of God is so very sweet. But at times there is a bitterness. Not a bitterness to the word. But a bitterness that comes sometimes is sort of a sinking, uneasy feeling as you proclaim it. And as you bring it to others. You ever talk to somebody and try to invite them to church? You ever talk to somebody and try to get them to maybe change their ways? Have you ever opened up the sweet, beautiful word of God and have somebody kind of reject it? That's what's happening. You get kind of that bitter feeling. Not because the word is bitter. But there are times that as you bring this beautiful word to others, things don't always end up with unicorns and rainbows and this happy little feeling. The sweet word of God was given to the rich young ruler. But he went away kind of bitter. Not bitter toward Jesus. But the message was a little bitter. 
So now we talk about the application of that in verses 8 through 11 of this book. And John was given the book. He was told to come get it. He was told to eat the message, to devour it. You know, not in some cannibalistic way, but to, to take, become that intimate with it that he literally just sort of soaks it, he eats it. And he says it was sweet in taste, but the digestion was just a little bit bitter. And he was told at the end, and he says there in verse 10, he says, and, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many tongues and nations, or excuse me, many peoples and nations, tongues and kings. John, there's a message that has got to get out there. There is a message that has got to go forward. And it's, it's, it's necessary. It's a beautiful message. It's a very sweet message. But there are times when you kind of get that little bitter feeling. Just kind of things, just, ooh, ooh. All right, let's move on. Okay, now we're going to go on in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we're going to talk about two witnesses. But the backdrop here is, is holding fast to God's word. It's just truly holding fast. And because one of the things, it's not just holding on to dear life. And the encouragement is to hold fast to his word, cling to the word, love the word, respect the word. Remember, that was you know, the admonition you know, to the church at the beginning is hold fast to God's word. Not just sort of hang on for dear life. Hold fast to God's word. Now, before we do that, we need to have a little, we need to have a little lesson here. So I got me a little chalkboard, and we're going to have a little math lesson. Okay, now, and this is important, because you have to kind of keep in mind, you've got to kind of put yourself culturally back in time a little bit to what numbers meant to people and the significance of numbers, and that today they might not have the exact same significance. Okay, that's fine, but we also, we got to put ourselves back culturally what numbers meant to people. And again, they, you know, ascribed a lot of things to it. The number seven was considered perfection. I mean, that was perfection. You know, for a whole host of reasons, going back to the Old Testament, on through, you know, socially speaking, number seven was perfect. You know, number six was less than perfect. Okay, that's how you kind of get, you know, bad things come in six. But number seven was perfect. And so, therefore, seven years, when you talk about something happening for seven years, Oftentimes, that gets equated to this idea of that was a very perfect existence. Because the number seven and seven years, that is just, it is good. Now, three and a half years, though, half of perfect is considered to be a time of tribulation. So if you said, you know, you know like, we, like in, in our terms, we might talk about something, you know, on the hour. Or something like that. I don't know. I don't know that we really have a cultural equivalent kind of a thing. But for them, seven was perfect. Seven years was a perfect existence. Three and a half years. Half as much. Definitely not perfect. That was, you know, that was tribulation. And so when you get kind of into this three and a half years, so it's tribulation. Now, the other thing about three and a half years is it's not forever. But it's long enough. Because that's the other principle that comes with this. It's not forever, but it's long enough, if that makes sense. 
And if you just kind of you think about that in, for us, you know, three and a half years. Have you ever? How many of you ever sat down? You remember sitting down with, you know, your kid when he or she was in high school, and you talked to him. Oh, high school is so tough. Being a teenager isn't fun. There's this stress and this stress, and you have that, and you just want to talk, and it breaks your heart. And what you want to tell them is, you know what, this isn't forever. But try telling a kid, 15, 16, three and a half years. Oh, three and a half years. Oh, my word. You know, I mean, that, that's forever. No, it's not forever. It's a long period of time. It's not inconsequential. It doesn't happen like that. But it, it isn't forever. And, and understand, this because three and a half is going to become very, very important in chapter 11. And you've got to understand culturally what it means. It's, it's not forever, but it's a long period of time. But three and a half years is the idea of tribulation. Now, three and a half, also, three and a half years is also the same thing as 42 months and 1,260 days. And then again, that's, we're going to see that come up in chapter 11. We're going to see the term 42 months. We're going to see three and a half years. We're going to see 1,260 days. I cannot tell you with any great certainty why John, far more inspired than I am, even on a good day, chose to say 100, you know, 1,260 days, 42 months. I don't know. But they're the same period of time. And for whatever reason, you know, and for whatever way, what he was looking at and what he was describing seemed to make more sense to communicate either in years, months, or days. And we, I guess we understand that, right? I mean, if you come up and ask me today, Jim, how old's your kid? He's 15. He turns 16 next week. Years old. You know, I don't know, 14 years ago, if you come up and ask me, Jim, how old's your kid? Oh, 20 months. You know, you go back home, you know, exactly 15 years, excuse me, 16 or 15 years ago and however many weeks, I'd have told you, oh, he's four days. Okay, it just depends on the circumstances and the situation, and that's the best I've got for you, other than the fact that, you know what, you just got to trust God. You know, in fact, even Jeremiah talked about that, didn't he? What was that 29, 15, somewhere in there, you know, 15, 16, I'll get it right, I'll, I'll bring up, you know, talk about the secrets of God or his. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go to chapter 11. This backdrop of the, you know, the idea of three and a half years, but the idea that this, what, the story that we're seeing in chapter 11 is the firm holding fast to God's word, the clinging to it, the continued and ongoing witnessing of it. He says, there was given to me a measure. First thing we're going to do in, in verses 1 through 2 is we are going to measure the temple. Now keep in mind, you know, the whole idea of measuring, not only are we going to measure the temple, but look at this. Rise and measure the temple of God, verse 1, the altar, and those who worship in it. Now what he's not asking him to do is to go and measure the height of everybody in the assembly. Again, this the whole point here is understand the breadth of the temple. And not just the temple, but now, you know, because the, remember, you know, in the Old Testament, the temple was a physical structure. Okay, so now we've got the temple, of, and those that are in it. 
Again, this whole idea that we see not only the temple of God, the presence of God, but those who are worshipers of him, those that are followers of him. And to understand the breadth. Now, the outer court, it says, they're basically conceding that to the pagans. He says, leave out the court, which is on the outside of the temple. Don't measure it. Why? Because it's been given to the nations. They will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months, three and a half years. So he says, the, the temple. Again, you know, again, he's saying, understand that when God looks at this, God understands the exact dimensions of all of his people inside the temple. Everything else out there is getting trampled. Everything else out there has been taken by the pagans. It's been taken by the nations. It has been overrun by all those that are enemies of the cross. Don't bother measuring that. Don't bother worrying about the dimensions. Don't worry about that because they're going to go through a period of tribulation. And that's exactly what happened in the first century. God's people hung in there for some period of time while the world just, you know, was all messed up and while emperors this and that and the other. And let's let's get to something here in a second. Oh, Jim, don't do that. I just need a mirror or something because I hate kind of doing this. Anyways, um, I'll figure that out for next week. Um, And then he goes on to talk about these two witnesses. We're going to come back to this. Um, And he talks about, and it's really, in this, he's talking about the testimony of those that are persecuted. Not that there's just two people, really just two people that, that, that testify on behalf of God. He says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Two's a good number in Old Testament times. They're going to prophecy for 1,260 days. Now, I think the reason that all of a sudden we go to 1,260 days, because that just seems like a really, really big number if you're prophesying. You know, if you're doing something, I mean, it is funny. You know, sometimes the boys will be doing something, Dad, how much longer? And if I'm really being mean, or I'll give it to them in minutes. Oh, we got about 180 minutes. Oh, 180 minutes. You know, you tell them three hours and they've got hope. You know, if I tell them 180 minutes, you know, there is no hope. And I don't know, maybe that's what's going on here. I have no earthly idea. Just that, you know, if day in and day out you are testifying on behalf of God, you know, maybe 1,260 means something a little bit different than 42 or three and a half. I don't know. God took care of that and that's all I'm going to worry about it. But no, but look what happens here. So this is the testimony of the, of the persecuted. So there's this period of time when people are being persecuted, when the world does not want to hear their message. Now just hold that thought for just a second. That is not unique to the book of Revelation. Time and time again, God's people, God's prophets, God's messengers, God's ambassadors have gone through periods of time where the world or whoever the audience was did not want to hear their message. And they were persecuted. When Jesus sent the disciples out there, he says, you know what? If you run into problems, what do you do? Get up, dust yourself off, and go into the next town. Why? Because not everybody's going to greet you with a potluck supper and a homemade apple pie just because you come to give a gospel meeting. And so for three and a half during this time of this tribulation, during persecution and everything like that, they're going to do that. But now look at this, though, and this is so very critical. Despite the fact that they were going to be persecuted, God gave them authority. 
God gave them authority to all of them. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power, talking about the, the witnesses, have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. These are not feeble little prophets with a feeble little word of God or anything like that. Now, that doesn't mean that they went out and did all kinds of crazy things. It doesn't mean that at all. But when you are armed with the word of God, when you are armed with God's ordained message, you are empowered. And the world may be horrible and your neighborhood may be evil, but when you are armed with the word of God, you have a power that nobody contend with. You cannot be killed for a long period of time. You can be killed here on earth. That's about it. You've got tremendous power. And so now, but the problem is, in verse 7, they're killed. Eventually they're going to die. Eventually those that bring the witness are going to be you know, killed. But look what happens, though. When they have finished their testimony. I find that so very beautiful. So very comforting. Because if you can go all the way back to the beginning of time, even until now, and you look at some the, the phenomenal people in the Bible... And then you transition it to recent years, and I look at phenomenal people that I've had the honor of being around in this church. It is amazing to me that God always made sure they finished their testimony. That the message that God gave them that was uniquely theirs to carry, whatever that was, a message of encouragement, a message of joy, just a message of a phenomenal life lived for God. It is absolutely amazing to me the way that God's people are taken up. But God's message is finished. The testimony is finished. When Paul struggled with, do I or don't I go on, what Paul ultimately came to grips with is, I've got a message that God wants me to bring. And so, they're going to get put to death. They're going to get killed, the Bible says. They will get killed after God's message and God's testimony is finished. That is to say that there isn't something that was left undone. There is no loose end or anything like that. And the beast will come out of the abyss. And don't worry about who the beast is or what the abyss is or anything like that. Understand, they were killed. For their testimony. Their dead bodies are going to lie in the streets of the city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, also where their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and the tribes and the tongues of the nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice. Now remember, when it talks about dwelling on the earth... That is a contrast to a dwelling in heaven. And so when the Bible talks about those that dwell on earth, what he's saying is those outside of Christ will rejoice in their death. 
And again, folks, you you look at that, we get all kind of excited and we see a beast and we see the abyss and everything like that. This is not the first time one of God's people has been killed for their testimony. It's just the language and the method by which God reveals this is different in this book. But understand what's happening is the witnesses of God, those that are clinging to his word and those who are doing everything they can to keep that word out there in front of people, this sweet, wonderful word of God in the midst of all kinds of persecution, they will ultimately be killed. And that the world will be excited about it. They'll celebrate the death. goes on to say, though, that the witnesses in verse 11... Oh, they're going to be resurrected. Don't get upset yet. And after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know exactly how this works. But what I know is, They suffered an earthly death, but they're going to be resurrected. And what a beautiful promise we have that when it is our time, when our testimony is finished, God is going to call us home. And the calling of home is not a timid process. In any way, shape, or form. It's a grand, it's a glorious, it's a big process. We may not get to see it. That's why John was given the ability to see this. John was given the ability to see the things that happen kind of behind the scenes. The things that happen in in realms that we know exist, but we don't really know how they work. Or anything like that. John's given a glimpse of that. A glimpse. And he probably still didn't get it all. And what he says is when God's elect, especially those that are suffering for the sake of Christ and are killed on it, those are martyred on his behalf. Remember we talked earlier about the martyrs of Christ. Oh, what a thunderous thing. And that is done in such a way that everybody will see. Remember, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Okay, now, we're still holding fast to the word of God here. In verses 14 through 18, we get the seventh trumpet. Now, the seventh trumpet is pronounced, you know, um, well, it's, they gave glory to God in heaven. And in verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Remember, the trumpets were about warning, about woes. You know, woe to those that are doing bad things. Again, woe to those who are at ease at Babylon. Woe to those, this sounds kind of like a prophet speaking, doesn't it? The seventh angel sounded, and there arose a loud voice in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and his... I just lost my place. Of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. It's the last woe to the ungodly. And when this happens, there is this restoration of the body. It says that the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And of his Christ, and he will reign for an ever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their face and worshipped God. What he's saying is, you know, now after this, here it comes. Here comes the warning. 
I want you to stop and think about that for just a second. And you've got to kind of think about, think like an emperor back then. If you think about, think like a pharaoh back then. I mean, let's think about pharaoh for a second. Maybe that's an easier one. What was pharaoh's greatest fear? That God's people would be multiplied. That was his single, I mean, that, that is why all the male babies were killed. Because that was his way to control the population. He did not want this huge population of people that followed God. He was worried. That was what he was fearful of. If you are an emperor back then, the thing that you fear the most is this uprising. If you are a dictator in 2013, the thing you fear most is the uprising. It is the coup. It is the retaking of the city by those that you have oppressed. That is the final woe. For those outside of Christ, those that are oppressing, those that are, that are trying, those that are killing, those that are doing bad things to good people, their single greatest fear is all of a sudden, uh-oh, Christians are running the joint. And God is reestablished. And my throne now gives way to an eternal throne that I don't follow and that I don't understand. And the nations were enraged, and their wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to the bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small, the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. The ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there was flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. We interrupt this message for this special weather bulletin. You know, we've got thunder, we've got lightning, we've got earthquakes, we've got hailstorms, all of this. You know, the, the temple is basically reopened. Not that the temple was closed, necessarily. And again, if you kind of think about this for just a second, go back in time to, you know, go back to, you think Old Testament a little bit. Go back maybe to the book of Judges. Remember as we kind of watched that biorhythm of God's people? You know, when they'd kind of go through that period where they were horribly oppressed. Oh, then good things would happen, and whoo, they're in charge again. And then something would happen in the nations. It's a slightly different, but you understand kind of that cycle, because we're only going through one cycle here. And the cycle is, in the first century, things were going bad for Christians. But ultimately, what was going to end up happening in all of this, and we'll, we'll talk about some, some history when we get kind of toward the end, so you can kind of understand some of the events that kind of happened you know, not too long after the writing of this, but you begin to understand and you begin to watch how the, the Roman Empire crumbled. And it crumbled for a whole lot of reasons. It crumbled for, you know, because of its conceit. It, you know, it, but really, it crumbled because God said it was going to crumble. And what ultimately happened was they were defeated. And this oppressive government, you know, could not stand. I mean, just think about it today. I mean, it, you, how far does the government of Rome rule? Well, just kind of down to the little toe of that boot and to the heel of the boot and up a little bit to the north. That's the expanse of the Roman government today. Back then, it was huge. Huge. You know, pride goes before. Anyways. And so the temple is reopened. The restoration of the body. 
It's reestablished. And, and so you go, well, okay, Jim, what are we talking about here? The whole idea, ooh, Jim. Faithfulness. Faithfulness unto death. Remember, God is revealing something, and therefore this message is going to go to people that are being persecuted, that are having a tough time, that are being oppressed by a government that wants to sort of wipe God out of existence, that wants them to bow and to worship an emperor. And he's giving them a vision of things that are happening behind the scenes. But the challenge here in all this is just, keep in mind, be faithful unto death. That suffering does not alleviate you of the responsibility to follow Christ. I mean, that's kind of the message as you bring it forward. That suffering and tribulation does not alleviate you of the responsibility to proclaim Christ. Or to adhere to his word. And if you kind of think about that, you know, if you're oppressed or in trials and tribulations, I mean, we don't have but a few options, do we? To boldly keep doing what we know we need to be doing. To cower in fear. And hope that it all passes, or to compromise. Those are kind of our only three options, aren't they? You know, whenever times get tough, things get rough, and it's not a whole lot of fun, you've only got those three options. Boldly keep doing what you know to do, cower in fear, or compromise. I mean, it's just, I I get so... Moved, so humbled, when I see people go through horrible health issues, you know, that are debilitating, that are challenging, things that would scare me to death. I watch people go through them. I watch parents go through them. There's only three options. And one of the testimonies that just rings loud is whenever I see someone, and, and, you know, we've seen the people that compromise, those that rail against God, those that blame other people. We see the ones that just sort of cower, just kind of sit in fear. Oh, man, the ones that boldly keep on doing what they've been doing all their life. Oh, that's a beautiful testimony. That is what's getting talked about in these two chapters. And what's in the vantage point is so very, very beautiful. Because what if you are a Christian during this time, it is very easy to think only in terms of your surroundings, the physical things that surround you, in terms of your suffering and what you're going through, what you perceive that God's reaction is to all of that. It is so easy to sort of you know, define things in terms of what I can see and hear. Hang on, folks. That is why this, this message, this vision is so very, very beautiful. Because John wasn't told, John, here, look, look at what's going to happen to this person. No, what John says is look behind the scenes at the way heaven thunders and lightning flashes over the testimony of God's people. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, dear God, we regret that we are on this side of eternity and that we don't see near as much as John got to see. God, thank you for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. 
God, thank you for the message you reveal to us through your witnesses that today boldly proclaim. God, we look forward to the day that we can surround your throne. Father, we're a little envious of those that already have. Father, that is going to be such a beautiful sight. God, thank you for sealing us and preserving us. God, be with us and continue to be patient and love us while we diligently pursue you. God, may we continue to bring your word, that sweet-tasting word to the world that so desperately needs it. God, thank you for Jesus. It's through him that we pray. Amen.